situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week, as usual, are Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi, folks. This week, we are talking about, we may have talked about it before, actually, but this week we're going to talk about the fall of Western society and how it's all going to happen, how it's happening and how it's going to happen. Um... We're going to look at it from a few different angles, from the kind of broad political level, in terms of what's going on in, in Western civilization at the governmental level, uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world, and also at the level of society and the kind of um, discourse that is going on uh, in Western societies, primarily, let's say, in, that means uh, America and, let's say, Western Europe, and to some extent, a little bit further afield, but Generally speaking, the international community, which is just basically the West and everybody else is left out. You all are just left. The rest of you, if anybody's listening from the, from outside of the international community, you're just here to observe what's going on in yeah, the West. You know? you're not in the club of the 20%. But, Sorry. But you're in a good position to uh, document its downfall. So congratulations. So hmm. on that cheery note... What is going on? Uh, when is it going to fall? Should we be expecting a, a large kind of thud anytime soon? Uh, or a kind of collapsing sound? Or should we see a plume? Expect to see a large plume of smoke on the horizon? And oh, there it goes. Civilization just collapsed. <laughs> no? Doomsday clock is one minute from midnight. It's one second from midnight. <laughs> it's one millisecond. No, I don't think so. Maybe. Maybe there's some, I mean, when I, like Pierre's article about how sudden that likely impact was that, you know, wiped out the woolly mammoths. I mean, you, you can get apparently very, very sudden events, but more likely no, if we go by human precedent, civilizational precedents, I mean, Rome took hundreds of years really yeah. to fold. Well, yeah, um, yeah the, the process of the, the, the slow decay or disintegration and stuff, I suppose, but that's what that's the level that we're really talking about. We're talking we're not talking about you know lights out all of a sudden. We're more talking about the uh, the process of uh, of the downward trajectory of Western civilization and why it's um, what are the what are the the details or the the means by which it is going downhill and and why the things that are happening today are suggestive of a kind of a slow decline. Uh, of of uh, of a civilization, you know, it's interesting because all you ever do is uh, read about when you read about history, read about the, the fall of civilization or the collapse of certain civilizations in the past and stuff, and that puts it way, you know, off into the kind of level of the abstract type thing, or just like a story, or it's not really real. But it's it's interesting to <laughs> to imagine that we're in the middle of one of those uh, kind of almost mythical collapses of civilization and and. Kind of like a fish in water, it might be a bit difficult for people to see it, and a lot of people for a lot of people to see it. Let's say to see the it happening around them because it's 
it's gradual and you gradually accept changes in in, in kind of narratives and, and the kind of discourse and the way government works and that kind of thing uh, and even in standards of living and stuff you, it happens quite slowly and you people adapt to it and accept that it's normal but they don't mm-hmm. usually stand back and look at it from from a broader perspective um, but I'd say a lot of people alive today a lot of people alive today still uh, can do that to some extent if you simply cast your mind back to you know the 80s or the 90s for example uh, and look at the world then and look at the world today and I was talking to someone about this uh, recently and I was saying that it's more difficult for it's very easy for people who are maybe somewhat older than I am and that the, the four of us here are in that um, they had a longer, let's say our parents' generation or somewhere in between uh, us and them had, had a longer time. Let's say people who were born in the, uh, you know, in the 50s um, have a longer time period of living in a relatively normal Western world uh, than, than we did who were born a bit later in the, you know, in the late 70s or 80s. Um, because by the time you're born, like say in 1980, by the time you were 20, it was already, you know, it was already 9-11 type thing and things were already gone pear-shaped. So your kind of adult waking conscious life uh, was is, has been based largely in a, a kind of messed up world, whereas, and you don't have a lot to compare it to, you know. Um, that doesn't say much for the regime as a whole, does it? What? But because it's not much further back from that generation you're speaking of, whence it just began. Well, yeah. In other words, it's stability, it's vitality, whatever you want to term you want to describe it as, it's health yeah. was always well, going to be short well, and brutal. Down, yeah, it went, it went down very quickly, it seems, if, if we're corrected, certainly in historical terms. It, it has gone downhill extremely quickly as far as civilizations go. I mean, there's, if any civilization worth its salt should last you know, several hundred years or, or longer, you know, before the rot starts to creep in. But if you put America, uh, the rise of the West with America as its, as its leader, as its as the top of the, the pyramid, um, if you put the, the dominance of that civilization back, let's say, I don't know, a couple of hundred years at most, you know, if that, or maybe the start of that, particularly in terms of America, you're talking about really a stretch would even be like the, the beginning of the 20th century. So, yeah, I mean, at a stretch, you could say you could give America uh, at the helm about a hundred years, if that, and yeah, it's all gone pear shaped in a hundred years or less. You know, so that's not really. Um, but then that's not all of Western civilization. You you could throw in maybe like modern Western civilization. You could throw in another couple hundred years under the British Empire. You know, but still, <laughs> it's not very good. It's not a very good record, and I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it's maybe it's one of the last civilizations to happen or something like that. Um, something along those lines. You know. That the last one is always the worst one type thing. But um, who knows if it's the last one or not. But certainly it's one in a series of civilizations that have come and gone over the course of the past, you know, four or 5,000 years. Um, and most of those other ones lasted quite a bit longer than this one, or seem to have. Um, yeah, anyway, let's talk about some details then. <laughs> Specifically, what's, why is it all going pear-shaped, Neil? Well, maybe it was too idealistic with its foundations on liberalism. Well, yeah. On freeing the individual from restraints and mm. uh, of realizing his highest mm. possible goals. They went too far. 
in that sense, if you look it, at it, it, it forgot it forgot about human nature being a, a mixed bag, a fifty-fifty mm. balance, really, between being an animal and this higher creature. It yeah, can oh. aspire to yeah. occasionally. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at it in the broad terms, maybe you could could look at it, at it in this way, where um, this modern era and the civilization that we have today, to some extent. And it's, you know, it's unusual. It is culmination, let's say, of previous ones in that it, it tends, if you allow for Western civilization, civilization having spread all around the world and you accept the idea of globalization, then um, it's certainly the biggest empire, let's say, or civilization in, in a string of them going back several thousand years. And each one, let's say, not in a uniform kind of way, but let's say each one, progressed human development uh, further and further along. So now we're at the, we've got to the, the furthest reaches, the one that, that posits the idea of, in a, in a lefty kind of way, let's say. Universal human rights. Universal human rights, you know. And in a general sense, the idea of reducing suffering, at least they give lip service to the idea of reducing human suffering to the greatest extent possible. But if you take that too far, that seems to be a problem because, as you were kind of alluding to there, Neil, it's, um, it seems that life, and hu- life on planet Earth for human beings and for most creatures, by definition, involves some suffering. And in a certain sense, you could say it has to. And if you try and remove that, then you're messing with the kind of base code of the system. Mm. And you're going to upend the whole thing. It's, it's, you're going in the wrong direction. You've got to have a bit of humility in the face of the kind of living system and, and how it operates, you know, and, and, and not try and uh, put, your, put yourself in, in God's, God's position or, you know, in the Pope's chair. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I think anyway. the, the, there's kind of like a, a balancing act. Um, you know, it's, things tend to swing between two poles, over time, and even if something starts out with a what can be seen as a genuinely good idea, um, that can always be taken to extremes and um, kind of right. corrupted or um, you know turned into a caricature of itself. So you can take this this liberal idea of you know the the individual and human rights, and then if you just I mean, it's kind of like the law of large numbers. If you have enough people doing something, I mean, it, it tends to kind of all even out and um, maybe kind of lose its um, use, lose the thing that actually makes it, you know, what it is. And it just becomes, uh, you know, a mass movement of, of, you know, essentially non-meaning. So with the human rights thing and the individualism, you get, you know, you, you have some like the human rights movement and you have several developments that, um, you know, I think from a certain perspective can be seen as, you know, objectively good to some degree. And then you get, um, you know, as things improve, um, you know, things improve, let's say in Western civilization, things have improved generally, you know, on a positive trend for, for the vast majority of people. But you're still left with some inequalities. Uh, there's always going to be people at the bottom, even if those people at the bottom are better off than you know, you know, a, a huge percentage of the people the world over. But then what you get is these relatively well-off people who are still kind of pushing for the same thing, and then you know they're they see themselves as the oppressed, and then they they focus on these more like they focus on 
more trivial issues as time progresses. And I think that it, that reaches the point of absurdity. And um, I think a, a good example of of this kind of trend of this decline of civilization was in a in a video that's been going around Facebook lately about the guy that goes to a college campus and asks, um, you know, just goes around asking random people about this identity, um, you know, politics, um, and basically asks these people, oh, well, what would you say if I said I was a six foot five Chinese woman? You know, and he, he gets all these college, that's where it eventually gets to, but he gets all these college students to essentially say, oh, well, you know, if, you know, if you could argue your point and, and, uh, and, you know, convince me that you've got a good reason for thinking that, then, um, then yeah, just you be whoever you want to be. Um, some of the don't go that far, but it's, you see the kind of cognitive dissonance in these kids where they're, you know, they've been basically brainwashed just to, to think, well, this all comes out of the the gender identity thing. So, you know, if a man wants to say he's a woman or a woman wants to say she's a man, oh, well, you know, you just do whatever you want to do. If that's if that's who you feel you want to be, then, you know, all the power to you. And he just kind of takes it to an absurd degree to such a point where th- these kids c- can't disagree with him, um, even if it's really obvious that they should and that they know they should, but they, <laughs> they, they, they're trapped. They just, they, they can't. So, so it ends up... Mm getting to the point where they're willing to concede that he's a six foot five Chinese woman when he's a, like a five foot 11 white male. Um, mm. And it just gets to this absurd point. So you can see like the, you know, the, I, that's just the end result of this, uh, of this process. And it's, it's swung to a degree of absurdity and meaninglessness, um, right. which it's, right. it's right. Just on that. Phenomenon. Let, yeah, but let's let's kind of discuss that because obviously that's a that's a major it's a hot topic these days. That that uh, what you described there of people being able to be whoever they want to be, right? Um, I mean that that term itself, you know, is the kind of thing that would have been said to by parents to young people. You can be whoever you want to be, you know. But what they meant when they said that, <laughs> let's say twenty or thirty years ago, was you can be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or. You know, you can be president even if you want to be. You can be whoever you want to be. But now it means <laughs> you can be a six or five, Chinese, five Chinese. That's not what they meant. But the team, it's, they've, they've taken it to that extreme. And the thing is, people may think that's just silly. Well, it's just stupid. But it is quite shocking that anybody would be able to go to a university campus and talk to, you know, 20-year-old kids who are well-educated and would get those are supposedly well educated. Well, they're 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 as educated as most people are ever going to yeah. get, right? Oh. Uh, so they'll be to some extent the, the next generation, the leaders of tomorrow, let's say. And to ask them questions like that, and to get and to have them say to a white guy, "Yes, you can be a Chinese woman mm-hmm. if you want to be," and and to accept that those students would, uh, or, or to get them to accept that, that they would call him. That they, if they were to, for example, had to hang out with him or something, that they would always be referring to him as a Chinese woman. Well, he can go all the way. He would have it designated on some sort of his ID or driver's license. Legally, I am a six foot five Chinese woman. I must be recognized in those terms, or else I have the right to sue. Yeah, or you can. That's that's taking it all the way. If you can uh, be in trouble, yeah, like the bill in Canada. Yeah. But so there is a problem with that. It's not just something silly, right? Well, I mean, yeah, for society, it, it seems like uh, 
there's been a hypersensitivity that's been encouraged uh, among people. Uh, you can be offended for anything. Uh, you here is a safe space where uh, where you can go and, and take shelter from uh, objective fact. Uh, and some time ago, uh, you know, becoming anybody that you wanted to be implied hard work and and a good deal of uh, putting the, your nose to the grindstone. And uh, and that seems to have been replaced by a um, a kind of uh, uh, permissiveness or or mm. lack of values mm -hmm. that's been inculcated into people, and and uh, I think it's accelerated in the past uh, ten or twenty years. And, mm. and what we're seeing today well, is a culmination of, of right, those kinds of values or non-values. Right, but my question is, what is the negative effect of that, if if any, on society? What can we foresee? Uh, if that were to spread, if you had a lot of people, even a majority of the population, were willing to accept that a a white uh, guy was a Chinese woman uh, and would address such a man as a Chinese woman, uh, if you had a lot of people doing that and doing that in various different ways, like you know, referring to a black guy as a uh, as a what, as a, I don't know, as a white guy or uh, whatever. Um, what what is the negative? What are the negative implications for society? And I mean, tangible negative implications. I mean, is it just the fact that you'd have silly people walking around addressing people uh, as something they're not, or would, would it actually does have other more nefarious implications for society as a whole? Well, I think it would. It probably would. I'm gonna. You know, I, I haven't really thought about it to be able to get all the specifics, but maybe we can kind of work that out because I think. The thing that really stuck out for me when watching that video was this one girl who says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, well, it's not my place to judge you or anyone for anything. Right. So that was the, the that's the kind of motivation behind this kind of thing is that I don't want to judge you for any reason whatsoever. And mm -hmm. one of the very, you know, tangible effects from that is that it's just, it's it's a total free license and you're not able to or you're not allowed and you don't allow yourself to um, be critical of anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's it's kind of paradoxical because on the one hand, there's that attitude, but on the other, um, like the politics that comes out of these people is very judgmental and um, mm. and nasty. But so mm -hmm. there's a there's a kind of two opposite you know ends to this. But on that one hand, it's that any well maybe it's that anything that is um, promoted as being um, off limits is is then off limits, and that can and that's arbitrary. It can apply to any to whatever um, you know, just society in general, um, mm. you know, wants it to. So, mm. in this case, it it uh, you know, in the specifics here, we're seeing um, you know, race and gender, and he takes it to the absurd to the absurdity of something as you know. Well, they're all absurd, but to the absurdity of you know your height. So he says he's a five eleven guy, and he says, "Well, I, I I believe I identify as a six foot five person, um, which is just absurd." But um, but the it's the same. Uh, it's essentially you know the same thing. You're taking biological realities and you know saying they're not true. But mm. where can this go? Well, it can um, with the with the whole uh, sexuality thing with um, you know homosexuality and transgender. There's a there's a kind of um, uh, trajectory to that where uh, we've seen 
in the past several years, um, certain kind of movements and articles and even psychologists um, talking about pedophilia, for example, and it seems like they're almost trying to normalize pedophilia in the mm. same way that, um, you know, homosexuality and, and transgender, um, you know, issues have been normalized. And when you get to that point, like if you just take take that girl's statement that I'm not going to judge you for anything really mm. to its logical endpoint, you know, that mm. would mean a total breakdown in the rule of law and any kind of crime. It's like, well, who am I going right. to, who, who am I to judge you for, you know, raping right. and murdering that person? And who am mm-hmm. I to judge you for, you know, stealing all that stuff? And, you know, mm. it, 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 then you have to ask, well, you know, what are the limits then? You know, is, mm. is it just truly anything goes? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, here's, here's, it's interesting that, yeah, man, just, I was going to say something that about what Harrison just said previously was that you know their politics are very nasty in, in that they um, yeah they're very aggressive about demanding that no one be treated aggressively mm-hmm. um, you know so it, there's that uh, kind of paradox in what they do obviously they may be seen as snowflakes but when they're defi- defending the right of everyone to be a snowflake they can be quite unsnowflakey you know in that sense but um, it's interesting. Yeah, what you're saying about in terms of uh, the rule of law, how, who am I to judge anyone else? I'm not, I am in no position to say that you can't be a Chinese woman if you're a white man. uh, And therefore, I'm in no position to say that anything you do is wrong because that might be offensive and it infringes your human rights and stuff. So it's a complete abdication of any, of of like the basic human instinct or responsibility to recognize something that is, negative for for uh, society in general or let's say even for your local community or, or your family even and and, um, and to take a stand against it but then at the governmental level in terms of what we're talking about here how it affects kind of both you can see that uh, this would be a falling away of of america's role whether or not you agree with it but america's role as the policeman of the world or sorry the mm-hmm. police uh, person of the world uh, <laughs> um mm-hmm. it's you know you would have people you would have uh, a, a a whole generation of people who also enter into politics or become kind of policymakers or lawmakers or inform an American worldview, and they would no longer America would would obviously pull away from under these people's uh, influence would pull away from uh, taking any um, uh, making any aggressive moves in the world like being uh, engaging in any kind of conflicts to stop, for example, you know, uh, a brutal kind of war in some country or the aggression of some band of cutthroats in some country from slaughtering millions of people or hundreds or whatever of people, um, America would just say, well, who are we as America to say that anything is wrong? And that's very different from the approach America has taken, at least in name, over the past hundred years, which is that it's been the, the arbiter of, uh, of you know, right and wrong and, um, uh, and justice in the world, effectively, you know, so... Yeah, I suppose these are all things that will happen down the line, I suppose, if you take the example of these people in, in university campuses to an extreme, if this was to take hold with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, but then if, if you look at the kind of historical precedents for these kinds of things, um, like I don't think it's possible for a, a society to really exist where um, where anything goes and just everything's accepted. There's always, on the flip side, the things that are actually um you know, socially sanctioned is unacceptable. So, and, and we see that in the, you know, in the social justice warriors and the, the radical left kind of movements where 
they profess one thing and these these high ideals, but on the other hand, they totally go against them. But if you look at something, but, but that's not to say that bad things can't happen because it things tend to to work in a particular way. And there's a you know an example in the Soviet Union where, um, like if you read Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, he talks about how um, like the the social perception of of crime kind of got turned on its head. So, for example, the there was what what he and you know the the prisoners of the Gulag um, and I guess society in general maybe would call like the thieves. And this was like a class of criminals, like career criminals, basically that were just uh, you know what, what we'd probably call antisocial personality types. These are the guys that are just um, well, men and women who are just no matter what they engage in crime like all the time, and they you know they steal and kill and. And so these these folks were in the the gulag along with all the political prisoners, but the thieves were um, treated way better than the political prisoners. They were viewed as what was called something like the like the socially acceptable or socially healthy, um, you know, criminals because they were seen as um, uh, as essentially good and part of Soviet culture because crime was just a, a social construct. And once, you know, communism progressed a bit, then there would be no crime because there would be no, you know, capitalism to create the, the criminal element. Right. And so, so the thieves, like the actual, like, psychopaths and antisocials that just, you know, didn't have the, the um, you know, the, the front brain matter to be able to operate in politics. You know, these were the guys on the streets. They, they, you know, they were, they were treated as like the princes in the gulag and they got everything and they got away with everything. And yet the people that were seen as evil and the real criminals were people who, for the most part, hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, like Solzhenitsyn wrote a letter where he was critical of the Soviet leadership during World War II, you know, on the on the battlefield. And he got sent to the gulag. And mm. that's so but these but the the political prisoners were seen as like totally evil and as if they were the, you know, the really criminal elements when right. these were, for the most part, totally decent people. So things got totally turned on their head. And so maybe that's one direction where things can go, where um, this kind of um, lack of discernment and, and a lack of willingness to, to judge, it, it kind of puts things into this kind of chaotic state where things, where, where things then, when they solidify again, it's in this totally backwards manner. So no longer mm-hmm. are the people that deserve to be you know, judged by normal human standards – no longer are they the ones that are are seen as bad, but it's just some arbitrary group that happens to be the political enemies of the of the people in power. And yeah. so I think it, it, I, I think it's yes, what you're saying is like an inversion of uh, of the rule of law. It's not we're not talking about a situation here that where there would be no rule of law at all. Mm-hmm. No one would enforce anything, but rather as, as I was saying, saying earlier on about the kind of social justice warriors in the university campus people. Uh, where they're quite aggressive about enforcing the right of other people not to be aggressed and for enforcing the right of other people to do whatever the hell they want. So you get a situation where, for example, uh, the police will be putting people in prison for trying to stop a pedophile from preying on children. Because who are you to say that that's not normal and that's aggression? Ultimately, stopping people from doing stuff is the aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not... Uh, or sorry, stopping people... From doing whatever they want is seen as the aggression rather than the opposite, whatever the opposite is. What were you going to say, Neil? Um, it, I think this is this is useful to consider hypotheticals and then to draw on historical cases elsewhere, like um, 
the Gulag system. Um, I was trying to think of an actual tangible result we have before us, though. Um, we've mentioned this kind of reluctance slash inability of the students to want to judge anyone. I think it's more profound than that, although they might indeed feel and experience it in that way, oh, I don't want to judge anyone. Maybe it's more, it's deeper in that there's some kind of um, short-circuiting in that they would normally be comfortable with simply naming something as they see it and as it is. Mm -hmm. This is the agreed upon name for X and for Y, and here we go. And if you have a problem with that, please, it's up to you now to explain what exactly your objection to it is. I'm using the commonly agreed term that we all use. Now, terms agree and meanings of words change over time, in, usually in a slow, more or less processed way. Organically. But we have this situation where a lot's being introduced all at once, and it's creating this confusion and intense subjectivity. Um, and I, I think I can... I think I can see how that translates into, um, particularly when I think of Americans and their understanding of what goes on abroad, their confusion about it, um, the confusion of their own elites. Um, you, you can take a nominally left liberal congressman, let's say, give his or her reasons for why sanctioning that other country over there is the thing to do. And his or her nominal opponent and they are at each other's throats on other issues, maybe domestic, have match up and sink in perfect bipartisanship when it came to that foreign issue. And his or her conservative counterpart gave a totally different narrative for it. In other words, they're both in extreme subjectivity about some objective process. For some reason, they're both reluctant or unable to give the objective state of reasons for it, which is simply, well, we can boil it down to something brutal like, well, we want to go into that country because we want to get access to their market. Mm. They, but they won't name objectively. They won't call, what, won't give it his due and right. just call it. They must wrap it in subjective. And, and instinctively, been... they know why. Because they know that in the greater moral pool of the overall human species, they will be condemned for it. Mm. Yeah. But they can't ever face up to that question. So you're saying America, has, America in general, particularly the political class, have been kind of uh, immersed in this kind of a dynamic yeah. uh, for for a long time. It's part of the whole political kind of class and the, and the way they think. It's it's the it's the fabric of, of yeah. political life in, in America to basically to promote narratives about stuff, yeah, to, to, put, lie all the to, time. to lie to themselves and lie yeah. to other people about we, their real motivations for what they're doing in the world because someone way back at the beginning or they, each of the, each, each politician who comes across it or finds himself in that position realizes it's not unique to Americans, I suppose, to, no. to sugarcoat or give a narrative uh, for a positive narrative uh, to cover what your real intentions are that you may, not, may or may not even be aware of, yeah. but to spin the reasons you did something uh, into a positive, even though, if you were to be brutally honest, people would say, yeah, that's not such a nice thing you did right yeah. there. That's not such a good, honorable reason. But you spin it into honorable uh, reasons or motivations for what you did. And that process of doing that has a, a an effect where then it spreads into yeah. down through society because, uh, I mean, obviously yeah. politicians are convincing the population to do the same thing. They're telling, they're lying to the population, effectively. The yeah. population are swallowing those lies. And then everything becomes a narrative and people become Come totally detached from the actual truth, not just the truth out there in the world, but the truth within themselves, the truth of their own 
reasons for doing things they don't even know. So it has to become a everything becomes a narrative basically, and then it becomes just yeah, like you said, completely subjective. It's just a subjective nonsense really. It, it goes further and further into nonsensical statements. Yes, you know the, this uh, this came uh, came home to me a few years ago, just prior to the uh, Olympics in uh, Sochi, Russia. When Barack Obama went on a um, one of these late night TV shows and was uh, speaking out against Putin's homophobia, and I think that's just when um, the the whole you know Russia's homophobic, Putin is homophobic kind of idea first came to uh, came to light, and uh, a lot of LGBT people ran with it here in the in the U.S. And um, basically, you know, you were not only asked to uh, to kind of fear the the, the non politically correct um, idea or approach to to uh, these alternative lifestyles in the U.S. and and abroad, but you were it was also coupled with anti Russia uh, Russophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to be that you don't, you don't want to be intolerant. You don't want to, mm-hmm. uh, be thought of in this way. And, uh, at the same time, you get to demonize Russia simultaneously. Mm-hmm. You, two parts of one stone. <laughs> so that was a very interesting kind of, um, uh, thing to see here and speaks to what, uh, you were saying a moment ago, Neil, I thought. Well, this mm-hmm. is kind of another example of that, um, kind of contradictory disconnect that I, that I mentioned earlier. Where on the one hand, you are, like if you're uh, an, an anti-Russian propagandist, you're arguing on the, the basis and the premise of, um, you know, being um, accepting and open and, um, you know, human rights and all that, gay rights. On the other hand, you're being totally um, intolerant and, uh, well, there's a word for it now, Russophobic. And you can get the, you can you can get a hint of the absurdity of this when you read some statements um, made in in the last couple of weeks even from um, I think there was some um, <clears throat> like American politicians who have said this basically might have been at some of the Senate hearings yeah and one of them yeah there there was an American politician and and then there was this Bill Browder guy the the Brit- British guy who testified at the the latest kind of RussiaGate hearing where he basically said all Russians are you know genetically liars and devious and someone else had made like a very similar statement a, a couple weeks ago and and of course he can get away with this and he does get away with it and no one calls him out on it but can you imagine if he would have said that the jews are all genetically or, you know liars? Yeah. yeah i mean just if you just substitute in like the you know jews or or blacks or even uh um you know any other kind of race that's not in the news a lot for mm-hmm. you know not being demonized in the news you mm-hmm. see how over the top it is and how just just um you know kind of absurd and hateful it is <laughs> but you yeah. but you can't but, see it. there's a blinder on when it has to do with russians right although it's a bit much to ask the average kind of uh, leftist kind of person or social justice whatever person in <clears throat> or liberal whatever term you want to use in the u.s to you know stand up for the rights of of russians from being uh, from you know to take a stand against russophobia in the us because you know don't, that's they're not really interested in international affairs most of them right they're all interested in what's going on at home and combating intolerance at home because they're really only concerned about their great country the us of a and where they live which is to a certain extent understandable right you mm-hmm. sort, sort out your own house first before you would even think about 
helping anyone else. So uh, that's the idea. And of course, it's close to home and it's what affects them most and it's what they, what they see most often. So they're all concerned about the societies that they, the society that they live in. Um, yeah, I just want to make that point. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's been a few of these uh, pundits on TV and former intelligence agencies that have come out and, and said these incredibly uh, kind of incendiary remarks. I think Paul Clapper, former NSA chief, came out. Yeah. There was a, another general yeah. uh, who was recently interviewed in, uh, on Fox News with um, Tucker Carlson. And it, it, it's absolutely it, – it's really shocking to hear them – uh, speak this way because uh, if they weren't American, uh, you can easily transplant their words to, you know, Nazi Germany yeah. circa 1938. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, subhuman and you can't trust them. It's, yeah. It's, it's incredible. Uh, James James Clapper was um, James Clapper, thank you. director of national intelligence. He, he argued that Russians are biologically or genetically incapable of not doing what he accuses them of doing, of mm-hmm. infiltrating into other countries, taking over their structures, and eventually corrupting their democracies. Yep. I'd like to throw back, throw back to, 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 it's an allusion to the, um, to, to, Common to, to, yeah, to the, the Cold War era, I suppose. But, you know, they're no stranger to pulling up the Cold War and pulling up a communist, the Soviet Union to, uh, to make their points or to, 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 to smack Russia with, you know, which is pretty pathetic, but yeah. you know, it works uh, on some people, or certainly it seems to work on Congress because we're seeing that right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, in terms of the whole sanctions business. So, Neil, do you want to give us a rundown on the? Well, it's it's con- it's sanctions, silly season. Um, I mean, the U.S. has used sanctions. For a long time, really, and North Korea, six decades, um, Cuba, five decades, Iran, almost four decades. But um, it's now really ramping it up. Uh, North Korea again this week, more sanctions. Um, right. Russia, of course. Venezuela. That's, that's the, that's the, Venezuela. Russia is almost forgivable. It's understandable. It's predictable. We can't be surprised. But Venezuela would be a harder one to sell, I would think, because it kind of say to you know most Americans, it comes out of the blue. Um, well, not really, because they, they've been aware that Venezuela has been a, a bad child for some time now, since, since, since 1999 in Chavez. Um, but the, the rationale for it, the lie for it is, is awful. It's really bad. So they've issued sanctions against key personnel in Venezuelan government and military um, and threatened to actually roll out economic sanctions next week because the Venezuelans are today holding a elections for a constitutional assembly. This is apparently anti-democratic. Um, <laughs> therefore, we must issue sanctions. And it was passed. Trump signed off on it um, this week. Uh, I, I want to go, if you guys don't mind, I want to go into some detail on the Venezuela one. Um, yeah. Just to give some background. Mm-hmm. So the US has slapped sanctions there. <clears throat> uh, the UN, for the record, it disagrees completely with the US stance um, and has recognized that it's a good thing to do. And 
asked for both sides in Venezuela to respect the results. That the, the election is a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, uh, as a side note, you, have you noticed that the opposition protesters in Caracas and elsewhere, um, they look and act very much like the Yukis did in the, at the Maidan in mm, Kiev. Right. They've been uh, murdering. Well organized. Murdering. They're well organized. They, they kind of, they dress, they have the same makeshift shields and helmets, uh, fire Molotov cocktails, occasionally guns. Yeah. Um, They'll come out of some camp somewhere, training camp. Possibly, very possibly. Um, they've been they've been snatching anyone they think uh, deem a supporter of uh, the the regime, chavistas. Uh, they're usually black people. Black people actually. Um, a number of them have been stabbed to death and then set alight in broad daylight. These are peaceful protests, according to the U.S. government. Um, another side note: of course, Venezuela has has real problems. It's it's in a severe economic crisis. Um, ironically, I think because the government is not socialist enough, so it's never really got a hold of a system in which it sought to do what it wanted to do, redistribute resources fairly to the 85% of people who were basically below the poverty line through central planning. Um, so they never actually got there. But of course, the counter argument to that is, well, you when, know, when they tried, it failed. When you tried, it failed. And look, we've had 20 years of it. It's not working. Anyway, but not, without getting into that, um, the the idea it was called on the first of May by Maduro, current president. Um, he, as far as he's concerned, okay, the country is in a crisis. He's putting up his hands and suggesting that, that that they hold this election. So what is it? It's an election to elect 545 representatives who will constitute a constitutional assembly, um, which will either completely rewrite or just modify. The existing constitution. He acknowledges that the the one that Chavez oversaw in 99, which officially changed um, Venezuela from its fourth republic into its Bolivarian republic, uh, is not going right, and it's just got so much opposition to it that he's like, well, okay, start again, tabula rasa. Um, so that should be a win for the opposition. You would think. In fact, in 2013, they were calling for exactly this. Um, they wanted a new assembly to rewrite or modify the constitution. But now they're violently against it. And there's, there's a serious lack of consistency there. Um, so the, this takes place today is to elect, as I said, five, some 500 people who would start work Monday to um, start, start over, basically. Um, Maduro himself just he said, "I want to bring about some form of dialogue. Um, the country is politically charged. It's dangerous. A hundred people have been killed since April. Essentially, um, the opposition, since the beginning, since this was announced, has boy, boycotted the process completely, and refuse refuses to present candidates to stand in elections to this body." Um, calling it an, an illegitimate effort to rewrite the nation's constitution. And, well, <laughs> they, they couldn't be coming up with a more legitimate way to rewrite the constitution, you know? <laughs> this was the constitution saying, that was thrown out during the coup however many years ago, right? And then... uh, right. Uh, right, but, but yeah. by predecessors, yes, in 2002. Um, now, the, the 
the signal that the, the main opposition to it, I mean, the ultimate um, thing that's fueling the opposition within Venezuela is the U.S. government's stance against it. Um, as far as the U.S. government's concerned, this is a sneaky way for Maduro to stay in power. And the official State Department stance is that the only solution to the current crisis is for is really Maduro to stand down. Surprise, surprise. American now, regime he, he's, he's midterm. He's been elected. And he's suggesting, okay, we have an impasse. Let's, in an electoral and dem- a democratic way, let's deal with it now before the end of my term. And they're saying, no, that's, that's anti-democratic. Right. Um, it's an extremely obtuse stance to take. Of course, there are very good reasons for it, um, which are, are never stated. It's it's all shrouded in well human rights and the rule of law and democratic blah blah blah, um, which is precisely what the Venezuelans are trying to do, but um, not the right way. I think the State Department slash CIA, whoever deep state, um, reckons Venezuela is on its knees mm-hmm. and that they can um, deliver the coup de gras. Yeah, and there was a, a strong hint from CIA Director Pompeo this week that um, he's been said he's been talking with groups and leaders in neighboring countries, Mexico and uh, Colombia, in the event of chaos breaking out and having to go in and save Venezuela. Um, uh, I've, yeah. Just a couple of points about that is one is uh, it's legally within Maduro's right to do this. Uh, and two, yeah. uh, everyone feels so threatened about it because ostensibly it would mean that uh, the people of Venezuela would be better represented in, in such a new uh, kind of um, forum or, or parliament or, or what it is he's trying mm-hmm. to put together. And that would seem to be a dangerous thing to those who want to uh, extract Maduro and his, uh, and his people and, and put in a U.S.-friendly regime. Right, because the opposition wouldn't have and doesn't have enough popular support to actually get what it wants democratically. So Right. So they want to take it by force mm-hmm. under cover of yeah. freedom and democracy. That's the lie that, that would be exposed by this move. Um, Maduro is saying, okay, you're you're screaming nonstop for years now, and now you're getting violent about it, about your claim that you have a clear majority support in the population. I'm going to put that to the test. And of course, they're screaming that, no, you cannot put that to the test because they're damn well aware that they don't have a clear majority Mm -hmm. in the population. Right. But that you get back to the old kind of Kissinger uh, statement about uh, Chile during the the coup in 1973 that overthrew and killed uh, Allende, which is that, um, I think it was in in reference to that, that Kissinger said that the, the, the issues here are far too important to allow the people to decide. And of course, there is still a majority of um, people, a good majority of people in Venezuela who would, who are who are uh, in relative poverty and who would still vote for some form of kind of socialism or socialist government and probably under Maduro, like, uh, you know, the devil, you know, is better than the devil. You don't race, they would, they would stick with the existing uh, leader of the, of the revolution. And um, and that's the problem for these people is that they can't just allow democracy to happen. And that the point there is that democracy is just a joke in a certain sense. The idea of uh, the will of the people, um, that the will of the people should be allowed to uh, exert itself and, and, uh, and elect a particular government is, is 
anathema to to the rulers of the world type of thing because it's they who decide. I mean, you have a veneer of democracy and you create the impression of democracy, but behind the scenes, it's kind of managed. You're given a in most countries, most countries in the free world, you're given, as we all know, you're given a weighted choice between left and right. You know, mostly, and it has been that way for a long time. Where, uh, you know, the unelected, there's an unelected elite behind the scenes of you know long career civil servants, as they're called, who have been running Western democracies for a long time. So, um, there is no democracy in that sense um, in, in Western countries, and. Uh, so the idea that it would be actually happen in Venezuela is is ridiculous. Um, you know, it's stupid. You know, but they they're, they're hoisted in their own petard in that sense, where the language they use of freedom and democracy uh, is at odds with what they actually want to see happen, or the way it should actually happen, which is pretty much the opposite. People do not get to say who they want, especially in a country where the majority of them would say uh, or vote for the people that uh, America does not want to to see in power for various different reasons. But going back to the uh, <clears throat> the sanctions business, it's kind of interesting to see that America, like you said, Neil, uh, was sanctioned silly season. For me, that's kind of evidence uh, or symptom of uh, of waning American power because, um, you know, in the past, uh, well, it's kind of, we're kind of like in a, in a, in a, post, a, oh, sorry, a post-U.S. Uh, global hegemon era now, we've entered into that, where Previously, America could simply dictate terms to many countries around the world uh, without, without them shouting back publicly. Oh, with yeah, under the threat of under the threat of, uh, of military military force. You know, the implied threat of America having America having the greatest uh, military in the world and and all of its aircraft carriers and all of its bases and all that kind of stuff around the world. But over the past number of years, in a very short period of time, because of the rise of Ch- Russia and China uh, in terms of military might and, and in other ways, uh, the U.S. can no longer do that, and it recognizes it can no longer do that. Uh, so we're seeing them fall back on an almost exclusive use of economic sanctions. That's their plan B, if you know what I mean, their next best option. They cannot use their military power in the way that they have done in the past. So it's full-on sanctions now. But um, that's not working very well either. I mean, these people just, it's, it's, we've said this before, but it's like America doesn't know when to quit type of thing, you know, and um, it doesn't know how to borrow it gracefully. And of course, we understand the reasons why someone in position of, you know, top dog would have a difficult time just saying, okay, you know, I've had a, a fair run at it. I've, times are good, but now it's over and thanks for the memories and see you later type thing, you know, they're not going to do that. Um, they're going to fight all the way, and um, that brings up the question of of kind of Trump and the deep deep state again. You know, we we have the word uh, or the term American isolationism in the in the title of the show today, and it brings up the question of this Trump and the deep state, and what can at what level is that still functioning, uh, and in relation to um, the two different policies, of Russian sanctions, for example, it seems that. Trump, I mean, it's hard to get a read on it, but it seems that the Trump administration has wanted to, to some extent, uh, improve relationship, the relationship with Russia, for example. They, Trump himself or people around him, whatever, wanted to do that. But then you have the totality, more or less, as seen by the last, the, the, the most recent sanctions, 99% uh, of Congress uh, voted for more sanctions against Russia and then give it to the president to sign, as in you put your your signature on this. It's not so much that Congress didn't want to uh, go ahead and uh, 
impose it, but uh, they wanted to force Trump to be on board as well. We want your signature on this paper as well in order to force him in line, as in there's not going to be any improvement of relationship with Russia. Uh, now, why would they want to do that? Um, obviously, there's econ- pretty clear economic reasons why they want to impose sanctions, and particularly these most recent sanctions are about the, are the ones that are pissed off uh, European countries, particularly Germany and to some extent France, because it, as you probably read in the news, that um, these sanctions uh, threaten to uh, affect negatively affect European companies as well, and particularly in Germany, and because it specifies specifically Nord Stream two, the pipeline. They, they explicitly target anyone in a partnership, right, with Russian pipeline companies, right. with and that explicitly is, is Nord Stream two. So. Um, and there's a new pipeline from Russia direct, directly to Germany. And Germany and, by extension, other European countries rely heavily on gas and oil imports from Russia. Uh, and they make money from it. So uh, for the Americans then to suddenly to, to, to institute these new sanctions, which not only try to punish Russia, but by implication or by uh, by uh, directly specified, they... they negatively impact economically uh, European companies as well. And so the Europeans aren't happy with, with that. Um, but the reason they're, they're doing this, obviously, or what seems to be the reason they're doing this, is that they're trying to obviously isolate Russia, but also favor American energy supplies to Europe. They want to keep Europe in the sphere, in the American sphere of influence. Now, when Russia, if Russia increases its ties with Europe. It already has a lot of ties with Europe, energy ties with Europe, but if, if those ties are increased, well, that's bad news for America and the Americans who want to isolate Russia and keep Europe uh, under America's thumb mm-hmm. because those direct ties of more pipelines, more energy dependence of Europe on Russia and, and kind of like mutual ties in the sense of trade, etc., that would result from that is is obviously a bad idea. It's, like, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like jumping straight to the marriage type of thing, you know. Those those physical pipelines are the worst case scenario. It's one thing to start kind of making eyes at another country, as in like, you know, <laughs> to use an analogy, to, to, to get friendly with another country, then to go through the courtship and then eventually establish ties. As, you know, it goes, this is jumping to the end. This is like getting married first. Uh, for, and then you're, you're forced, because you're married, then you're forced to find out whether or not, not find out, but then you're forced to live with the other person and like find a way to like the other person and get on with the other person because you've already been married, right? And divorce isn't an option in this case because it's there's a there's mutual investment. Mutual dependence. Mutual dependence, right? So it's jumping straight to it. So it's like they don't want this to happen at all, you know? Um, and of course, by supplanting Russian energy supplies to, to Europe, they envision Europe then becoming dependent on um, American uh, resources, energy resources, particularly gas, liquefied natural gas, is what Trump has been talking about uh, recently um, about expanding, you know, exports of LNG to 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 Europe. But that's just about. I mean, Russia and Russia and Germany are you know kind of pretty much neighbors, you know, a few countries in between. But and it's much easier. I mean, the, the security of having pipelines directly between Russia and Germany and Russia and the EU is a hundred times better than the idea of having to. Uh, accept gas, liquefied natural gas, which is much more expensive from America, and it fracks the hell out of American territory to get, causing earthquakes in the process, to get this gas to make America a net energy exporter to other countries. Um, and it also has to come by boat across the sea. And America 
does not rule the waves anymore either, even in the Atlantic, right? Because, you know, there's Russian ships passing there all, all the time and China recently just took a little foray up into the, into the Baltic and stuff. So it's very, from a, from a, a security point of view, it's, it's a very insecure way of, of, uh, of getting your energy, you know. So that seems to be the, the, the source of these sanctions and it's just madness, complete madness and they're going to piss off. And the thing is that they want to stop Germany and Russia, this historical fear of Russia and Germany combining and becoming a force, which really would be a force to be reckoned with given Germany's uh, historical kind of productivity and it's, it's the size of its economy and, and its influence on the rest of Europe and the EU and stuff. You know, that's, that's a horrible nightmare situation for America. This basically means the end of, it spells the beginning of the end of American influence and control over Europe and therefore over a large part of other parts of Eurasia, you know. And so they really don't want to see this happening, particularly between Germany and, and Russia. But in passing these sanctions, they're pissing off the Germans. And not that I think the Germans necessarily have the cojones to do anything about it, or the EU necessarily has the cojones to do anything about it. Because, you know, like start a trade war with America and really distance itself. But by going down that road of pissing off the Europeans in an attempt to stop Europe and Russia getting closer together, well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you're just going to further, or you're going to speed up the process of, at least in potential, of Germany falling into the arms of Russia. So, but that, and that's, yeah. a, that's desperation, you know, that when you start to see that and it's either massive short-sightedness or it's, or, or it's just a desperate act. It's an act of someone who really has no other options uh, and doesn't see the writing on the wall, yeah. i.e. the end of American hegemony. I, now, Trump seems to want to do a different, do it a different way. You know, there's, there's like Congress and this deep state element seems to want to be, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of like, um, let me just see what I, I kind of wrote something on earlier on. And basically, uh, Trump seems to have a different view of how America can do business. And it doesn't really involve the USA continuing to project their power all around the world and force other countries. He kind of is more of a businessman and he wants to do business with people. Uh, it's kind of the difference between, well, and, and Congress, well, it's a difference between, say, let's, Let's use our influence to do better deals for America. That's Trump. That's what he said on many occasions. Let's use our influence around the world that we have already as a, you know, as a hegemon, a former hegemon to do, to do good business deals around, around the world for America and improve the American economy. And the other kind of deep state Congress type people type approach is uh, let's use our influence to keep our competitors down. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the former Trump's angle seems to would require an opening up and an improvement of relations with other countries because you want to do business with them. You can't be a, you can't be pissing people off if you want to do good business deals. And if you think you're in a, in a commanding position or in a good position to do a business deal, then you need to be friends with them. Trump's want to be friends. So, uh, so the, he, that requires him to be friends with people, whereas the, the deep state angle uh, requires you by default to actually piss other people off, right? You want to actively keep them down. And to do that, you would naturally take aggressive or make aggressive moves against them to stop them, stop them, uh, you know, stop them doing what they want to do, stop them expanding. So, but the problem with that latter one, where you, where you keep your competitors down, it also by definition implies that you're going to shoot yourself economically in the foot as well. You know, you're going to be cutting off, you kind of, kind of economically cutting off your nose, the U.S.'s nose to, to, to spite their enemies simply. 
you know, we're willing to take the hit. You know, there's a possible good deal we could do here with Russia in terms of exploring for gas or oil in certain part of the world or in the Arctic or wherever or in parts of Russia. But no, we're not going to do that because if that implies a net benefit for Russia, it's wrong. Even if it also implies a net benefit for us, we don't care. We're not going to take it. We're going to toss that money, potential money down the hole just to spite Russia. And Trump hates that because he's a businessman, right? He sees these deals yeah. going by the wayside all the time because the deep state is thwarting these deals. And he's like, what the hell is wrong with you people? Don't you, want mo- don't you like money? And they're like, no, we hate Russia more yeah. than we like money. Because in fact, they would say, no, we're going to end up with no money if you let Russia rise in any way at all. Or China. Or anybody. Or Iran. You cannot change the world order of us as top dog all the time dictating terms. If you let any of those people play at the table then we, by definition, will lose, and that can't happen. Even if us losing just means that we don't get so much of a share anymore, that's unthinkable to them, and they're willing to screw themselves over to piss off other people. Well, the other thing is that the, the deep state is so used to getting their money by stealing it. Uh, you know, you hear these stories about $6.5 trillion falling into a black hole of the Pentagon, unaccounted for, over 18 or 20 years, um, yeah. you, know, you have politicians like Maxine Waters, you know, uh, millions of dollars, uh, a state worth a, a million dollars as a congresswoman, not even living in the uh, in the neighborhood that she uh, is representing. Um, you know, they, they, they've already have this mechanism. They're already comfortable getting their money, uh, not doing for business. Free. For free. Yeah. Uh, blind robbing stealing the american taxpayer uh getting their yeah. money via black project so it's it's and stealing from other countries too like where did all the gold sure. from libya go exactly mm. one one analysis of this is that it's um designed to tie trump's hands this is from uh, vox the bill also limits the president's power to roll back the sanctions establishing a, quote, congressional review process that would allow Congress to block the White House from taking steps to ease sanctions, even if it later wanted to. Uh, as the article actually notes, it's what's really remarkable about this bill was that it was, it's, it's Congress passing a major piece of bipartisan legislation limiting the president's power. Uh, he was looking at it in that angle. It stands out in how, at a time when there's, you know, Obamacare, repealing and replacing Obamacare, split down the middle, another vote, another vote, split down the middle. You know, it's extremely partisan. But on this, uh, total, near total unanimity. Um, and he was suggesting that it's near total unanimity against Trump. I don't think so, because I think you get different narratives coming into play here. You get a lot of them who are actually supportive of Trump, and they see this as putting Bad. America first. So yeah. it's actually in support of the president's own narrative <laughs> um anyway coming back to uh i want to come back to joe's analysis there of the situation vis-a-vis shooting oneself in the foot and you ask is it short-sightedness i think it is um the, this the, this is the extent of subjectivity in the u.s uh like we were discussing earlier the problem with subjectivity is that it's endless it's like a fount of endless bullshit that can just keep coming up. And you think you've got a handle on explaining objectively what is actually going on behind it. 
and and then you another situation throws up a completely different set of behaviors so for example in the, in the analysis as joe put it where trump versus deep state over russia and you then sort of extrapolated that to an assumption that well trump basically wants to do good business with Russia and anyone else. So he's not necessarily interested in antagonizing anyone. Mm. But here's another case, Iran. Mm. Right off the bat, in fact, while he was campaigning, Trump was making big on his uh, spiel that Obama's deal with Iran was a mm. bad deal. Mm-hmm. And that, that there you had the, the left, in quotes, Obama doing some kind of a deal with Iran mm-hmm. to at least get something out of it. Mm-hmm some influence in Iran and in Eurasia as a whole. Right. And Trump comes in and blasts that one out of the water. Right. And now there's more sanctions against Iran. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I read today in the um, New York Times an article. Um, I can't remember the title. I think it was something about how China sees Iran as like the most important part of Eurasia. Anyway, it was a very fair article. It, it didn't get into, you know, making judgments and saying, you know, poo-pooing anything uh, or... or Shouting down at Iran or China, it, it simply gave an overview of the extent of economic cooperation between China and Iran, going back to 2002, uh, when billions started funneling from China. Now, let me just frame this uh, a little bit differently. While all the while the sanctions were in place and were nominally lifted last year, China has basically built up Iran. It now has. A military strong enough such that it's you know basically able to give some bluster back to the U.S. Um, it now has motorways connecting its largest cities. It has major transport hubs that have already been built. This isn't the hypothetical. Well, what are we going to do about it? The only reason Iran became an issue again when the Obama administration was forced to do some kind of a deal because <laughs> they wanted a piece of the pie which was already built. Right. It's a done deal. <laughs> Basically, China has built Iran in, in substance. Um, so, the, yeah, uh, I was bringing it back to what I was beginning with. Um, in this case, increasing the war rhetoric against Iran and, uh, you know, signing off on more sanctions against Iran it's, 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 it's extremely short-sighted because it, it, the cat's already out of the bag. It's, it's far too late to, to in any way attempt to thwart its development mm-hmm. to get it to comply with your rules. It's all, it's for two decades, it's been playing by different rules. They're, they're completely inconsequential. And it is literally a show of force, if you like. It's not really, it's, it's abstract. It's a pretend show of force to say you cannot step out of line to show the others that there are consequences doing so but there aren't there are no the, the only consequences of the actual sanctions that have been placed against iran for all these decades is that iran was forced to look to china for its development and it it, it embraced that opportunity to the max and continues to do so mm-hmm. yeah building ports down on the on the on the indian ocean uh, coast of, of yeah. iran for the export of iran iranian oil and, and gas to yeah uh, to China, because China. China's everywhere interested in, in natural resources uh, of different types, and the way it makes the deal is by going, pumping billions of, of dollars into uh, into countries for their infrastructure, and you know set, setting up the infrastructure infrastructure in a country so that the country can 
or the Chinese companies and, and whoever else can exploit the resource to send them to China. You know what I mean? So it's a fair deal type of thing. You know, you're taking, I mean, they're just uh, taking advantage of the situation where there's a lot of countries with a lot of uh, natural resources that are massively underdeveloped. And China comes in and says, well, we'll let's develop your country. And then you can exploit your resources with us and give them to us and sell them to us. We'll give you a, we'll give you a fair price and, and it's all good, you know. Um, and of course, this is, to a certain extent, that's the kind of thing that has not happened in the world because America was in the ascent, the West was in the ascent for so long. Um, and they had pretty much, with the Middle East, they pretty much had, and a few other places, they had all of the resources they needed for them. Type thing, and the rest of the world, well, it can suck it up. It's retarded anyway. It's behind. It doesn't. It doesn't need. Uh, uh, you know, when you don't need America, doesn't need to exploit or to develop the let's say develop the resources in in Africa because well, it would be superfluous to our needs. <clears throat> but now you have countries uh, over the past you know twenty years that have developed <clears throat> or are continuing to develop uh, that need those resources. You know, and China being an example, so they come in and they say, well, let's develop these resources. So then there's rapid development of of the infrastructure of several uh, African com- co- countries that would have been just left in ruins or type of thing, or, well, underdeveloped, let's say, uh, if the current order could have been held in stasis type of thing with America and the West as the first world country and then everybody else second or third. Let's just keep it that way forever. And that's like, are you serious? That's not going to happen, you know, with the development of technology. How are you going to stop the spread of technology, you know? How are you going to stop other big countries with massive populations and their own resources from developing and becoming as strong as you and therefore needing energy resources from the rest of the world to develop themselves. It's nonsense, you know, but they apparently they never thought of that and they thought that they could always just, you know, manage it their way and keep themselves on top by, uh, you know, carrying a big stick type thing as uh, I think they, they just uh, kind of launched or inaugurated or whatever you want to call it, uh, the latest USS, the newest uh, US aircraft carrier, the Gerald Ford. Ford. Gerald Ford, it'll be... It's already floating and stuff, and uh, the you know the secretary of the navy or something like that, or someone, some top dog in the navy told, told said to Trump, you know, one of your predecessors said, uh, talk softly and carry a big stick. Well, Mr. President, I'd like to present you with this big stick, i.e., the aircraft carrier. <laughs> and uh, so that's what they think. You know, they think they're going to go around the world with a big stick and intimidate people. But it's like a uh, newsflash can't really do that anymore you know and you're obviously not prepared to go to war with any of these countries that are able to fight back so what are you going to do you know like a a protracted kind of like what uh, sanctioned war oh yeah apparently you are that's what you're going to do you're going to try and have a sanctioned war you're just going to let the whole thing descend into infighting uh, because you can't get your own way it's it's nonsense and speaking of iran i mean i was just looking again at the you know we talked about a few weeks ago about the Qatar and the Saudis, and uh, talking about the Middle East in general, uh, the Saudis imposing these 15 or whatever it was, 12 stipulations of what Qatar had to do, you know, to re- so that they would remove the blockade because they're blockading Qatar. Kind of came out of the blue, you know, what, what the hell's going on over there? Well, you know, I thought you guys were all, all you know, all, all on the same page, you know, you little uh, Gulf, Gulf monarchies, but apparently all of a sudden, you know, a month or two ago, Saudi Arabia goes, we don't like Qatar anymore. Blockade them, sanction them. It's like, what did Qatar do? Uh, well, they give 15 kind of points that uh, Qatar had to meet um, if they if they were to, to, to reduce or relieve the sanctions and the blockade. Uh, but over the past while, you know, Iran came to Qatar's aid and Turkey came to its aid and Russia to a certain extent. 
and in just recently they've they've uh, watered down their demands to six general principles and they're kind of wishy four of them are basically you know general be nice and don't do bad things but there are two that require Qatar to adhere to uh, the outcome of two kind of meetings between the Gulf states and uh, and the US and some other Gulf Council meeting, whatever. And I kind of had a brief look at them. And what it suggests is that their main beef with Qatar, other than what we've said previously, which was that Qatar was kind of snuggling up to Iran in terms of the, ex- uh, ex- the exploitation of their shared gas field. But uh, the main point seems to be the Saudis were concerned and worried about Qatar was that they would be fomenting uh, uh, unrest inside Saudi Arabia. That the Qataris in league with someone, and of course you look back over the past few years, Qatar has been, Qatar, Qatar made a very significant deal with uh, Russia, uh, where Qatar, the Qatari, basically the Qatari royals bought 20% of Rosneft, Russian, the Russian state gas company. So that's a pretty strong tie right there. Uh, and then since then, um, there's been fears amongst the Saudi head choppers, the royal family, the Qataris were behind a plot to basically have a nice little civil war or some kind of a color revolution in Saudi Arabia to get rid of them. Now, if <laughs> if that happened, that would be the biggest pillar of, of U.S. hegemony or U.S. position standing in the world that would to fall. Uh, so, um, yeah, just thought I'd throw that in there. Strange things afoot at the Circle K. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, something I want to read out here. This, this gem was picked up by RT last week. I want you to try and guess if what I'm about to read out was said by a left-wing or a right-wing politician. Here we go. Um, this congressman, uh, I won't give his name. He says, I'm concerned about the undercurrent on social media that supports this trend. If you remember back to the 1980s, the United States was very effective using Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. It's now the case that Moscow is every bit as effective. They have become expert at supporting a certain pattern of thought, which is very authoritarian, very hard-edged, and which increasingly in Eastern Europe is moving an illiberal element into positions of power. My great concern about Sputnik and RT television, and especially the social media that's being deployed, deployed, <laughs> oh well, is that you can monitor in all the former Soviet states the feelings about Putin and watch them increase arithmetically year after year in Gallup polling. At the same time, you can also monitor the feelings about the UK and the United States and watch them plummet. It's successful not only because they are putting a billion dollars a year into it, but also because the KGB has become so damn effective at it. Was that said by a left or right-wing politician in the US? That sounds like a Clintonista. Nope. That was said by... Well, it would have been said by one of them, for sure. It could have been. Could have been. Your point is it was said by a Republican? Yes. Um... The point being, everybody hits the Russians. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Ed Royce sounding the alarm at a meeting of the Ripon Society, 
which is a public policy organization founded in 1962 and takes its name from the town where the Republican Party was born in 1854, Ripon, Wisconsin. Left, right. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. It's all anti-Russian. There's only one party in America today. It's the anti-Russia party. And yet, and yet, look at the increasing um, polarization among population over matters of left and right. Ident- yeah. With everything in between, or identity politics and... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, it struck me as another analogy. I kind of like analogies. And they kind of nice and succinct and convey a... Con- get to the kind of heart of things sometimes. It's um, that the the policymakers, I mean, not the policymakers, but the politicians and um, the ruling class in America seems to, of late, have really abdicated their responsibility to actually govern, i.e. govern America and govern the people and take care of the people and take, take care of the people's interests. You know, despite Trump, Trump's uh, claims of what he wants to do or what he, you know, look after the, the poor or the, the disenfranchised in America, um, they really have just descended, the political class have descended into complete, uh, into just looking after their own interests, their own grievances, you know, take John McCain, for example, and the kind of things. And, and, and what many politicians talk about, which is they're all hating on Russia, which has nothing to do with the American people, right? Uh it's, and, and like we were saying earlier, earlier on, it's kind of like it's economically destructive for America to engage with these kind of to involve itself with these sanctions. It's, it's not helping anybody, and so they're really they're, they've given up on on their responsibility. They're, they're really their 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 only job in theory is to <clears throat> run the country, i.e., look after look look out for the welfare of the American people, and that's like a, a parents in a family. Uh, you know, abdicating the same responsibility to look after their children. Can you imagine if you had a parents in a family of a large family, let's say, of a bunch of children? The parents just kind of give up and wash their hands of actually, you know, doing anything in terms of, you know, bath time or fee, food or school or anything. What would happen? Well, the kids would just go bonkers, right? They'd just start organizing themselves in the little cliques or clans, and they'd start fighting each other. They'd wreck the house, that kind of thing. And that seems to be happening with the American people in the, in the vacuum of responsible leadership. The American people, at least a certain section of the American people, have just taken out like a bunch of kids, and they're they're running wild, you know, uh, at least intellectually or with their with their with their political views or their 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 perspectives. You know, it's just gone gone bonkers, you know. So that's my analogy of the day. <laughs> Meanwhile, they they've taken it upon themselves to become school teachers instead of parents and manage the entire school. Because they they see their role primarily, it would seem, as managing the entire earth, hmm. and if that if that causes you know forty percent poverty rate in the United States, so be it. We have the earth to consider here. Listen, yeah. we're trying to be responsible. They're all our children. Yeah. Well, well there's one quick comment on the the quote that Neil just read. It's funny that he mentioned. Uh, Radio Free Europe, because, of course, Radio Free Europe is still going. You can visit their website. They're, they go as RFERL, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And if you check yeah. out their website, like I, I, I subscribe to their RSS feed just to see what they're saying. And aside from being just a kind of general all-purpose you know, wire service, essentially, um, 
the one constant is that they are <clears throat> determinedly like anti-Putin. And there's this this guy that uh, um, you know writes editorials, does podcasts. Uh, can't remember his name. It's not really worth remembering, but it's called the Power Vertical. And you know, so so several times a week, it's all about just how evil Putin is and how terrible he is, etc. And so I just well, you know. Okay, go ahead. Just to interject that Radio Free Europe was is basically a, a CIA yeah funded <clears throat> op, right? It's it's USAID originally, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was originally like directly funded by the CIA, and then they right uh, then they kind of got a middleman to to do it for them. But yeah. I just think it's it's hilarious that um, you know RFERL has you know, done such a great propaganda job for so many years, and now. They just, you know, can't compete anymore with RT and Sputnik and how that guy's mm-hmm. complaining that, uh, you know, you look at the ex-Soviet states in, cent- in Central Asia and, you know, Putin's numbers just keep going up and, you know, RFERL's doing everything they can and they just, you know, can't seem to catch a break because you know, people just like Putin. We don't understand why. Yeah. Well, it's, and it's wrong. It shouldn't yeah. be happening. We got to stop it. We got to stop people liking stuff that they like, mm-hmm. you know? We got to put them all through re reprogramming or something, you know. Yeah. Well, th- this this congressman Ed Royce who said that um, uh, the Russian government is expert at supporting a certain pattern of thought. Mm. <laughs> I think he's sincere in in describing it that way. Um, the we, we, a couple was it last week or a couple of weeks ago we, we played um, some extraordinary clips from former generals or current politicians who appeared on Tucker Carlson's show and they made similar mm-hmm. kinds of statements at this, where I was like, why can't these just... Well, what they're saying is that Russia tells the truth. No, but they don't recognize that. But they don't that. recognize that. They're, it's not that they're deliberately um, dissimulating, I think. It's, it's more that they are so deluded. They are. But, but they do at least recognize enough reality to go... There's something emanating from over there. And well, yeah. Well, I, I would call yeah. it a certain pattern of thought. Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> quite understand what it is, but I can sense it has some structure and consistency to it. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's. I mean, that's that's, it's, a, that's a subjective mind exposed to reality and going. <laughs> I don't comprehend. Right. What is that? It's something I don't want to be there, but is. Why is it? Why is it there? What is it again? It's like. Well, that's it's almost cliched. It's embarrassing for them to be saying that because it's it's, it's a cliche. Uh, I mean, it's been portrayed in in many kind of movies in one way or another, and I'm sure in lots of books and stuff uh, of the person who, you know, just you, you know when when they 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 follow an agenda or a certain uh, certain track, or they're trying to do something, and it's manipulative and stuff, and they're kind of manipulating and using other people and stuff, and then eventually they people stop. Uh, stop um, going along with it, people start resisting them. Uh, they start to get paranoid, you know, that when people start telling them that they're wrong and stuff, they say, you can't, why are you telling me? That's not normal. Before you didn't tell me I was wrong and now you're telling me you're wrong. You're telling me I'm wrong. You're telling me stuff that I that I don't want to hear, basically, that disagrees with me. And so that's fundamentally, there's something, something fundamentally wrong about that. And the only conclusion is that you must be being manipulated. It can never be that what you're saying to me is the truth and that I should kind of correct my course, that you're pointing out the error of my ways. That's unthinkable. It's doesn't simply not a part of reality. So when you, uh, when people stop 
agreeing with me, it means that the people are being having are be, they're being brainwashed by someone by nefarious evil propaganda, and I will hold that view till my dying day. Yeah, I will never accept that I am wrong. Yeah, and of course the end result. Obviously, someone it's been portrayed in movies and stuff. The end result is is a complete kind of it's it's, it's an ignoble end for those people. They just go down ranting and raving, basically. You know. Uh, that's generally what happens, and it's, that's why I say it's a cliche. It's, it, but and that's what America is doing. That's what these Ameri- these, these anti-Russian nut jobs are doing, and it's yeah, it's pretty sad. And uh, it's at different scales. Um, you know, there's long been an environmental issue for greenies slash lefties slash SJWs slash concerned local citizens across the U.S. about them um, fracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scientific evidence has been put forward to show that it's ex- caused an explosion in seismic activity that's destructive in Oklahoma and other uh, south central states. Um, up in the northeast, it's causing chronic problems with the water supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, documented, everyone's aware of it. It's been a, become a serious local social issue for, for many people. They're now rewriting that um, to, to say, well, where did this come from? You know, you can imagine how the, the thinking goes. Is it just convenience or, or is this how their mind thinks and it cannot be any other way? Where they're rewriting that entire, relatively recent, but extensive history mm-hmm. about reaction to fracking mm-hmm. as being a Russian conspiracy mm-hmm. to fund these groups and make it appear that there's an actual problem with fracking in the mm-hmm. United States in order to drive down market concerns and in order to pump up a reason and a perfectly plausible, as far as they see it, explanation to Europe as to why they're no longer allowed to get gas from Russia and it will be shipped over to you from us. It's clean, it's fine. And anyone saying anything against it hmm. is employed by the Kremlin hmm. to talk bad about fracking. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's directly tied to it. Yeah, I mean, this is what we said earlier on that the America, America has the, posits this, or has this premise that the, that Russia, well, it's simply something they want. You know, it's just they they want uh, Europe to mean to to continue to be under America's uh, or in America's sphere of influence to be eminent, eminently controllable by by the U.S. And they fear that Russian gas supplies and oil supplies to Europe will undermine that American control over Europe, and therefore they have to stop those gas supplies. And the only way that they can replace those gas supplies to Europe and make Europe a client of America uh, in that respect is to give them liquefied natural gas, um, which comes from fracking. Now, if there's any problem with the fracking, clearly it's Russia, because Russia knows this is what we want. It knows what this is what we're trying to do. And therefore, Russia will try to stop us from doing this. So not only the protests against fracking, but if if fracking... You know, if if the if the liquid gas the in in American in the American kind of landmass underneath the American landmass, if that ever dried up, well, you know what the answer would be. Russia had somehow dug a tunnel from Russia under the Atlantic, and had siphoned off all of that liquid gas, and taken it to Russia. That's the only explanation, right? But but at the end of the day, the the lesson seems to be here that the U.S. through all of these lies about what it's, what it's doing is ultimately just fracking itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd like to bring us back to our opening conversation. Fracking, fracking hell, Alan. <laughs> um, a 
about subjectivity um, and the polarization um, inside the U.S. Uh, the, the the kind of backlash against lefty gender identity politics, all that stuff. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of it, it's great and it's good to hear it talked about, but um, it very quickly veers into theories about how that came about. And uh, the most simple dominant form is that it's a conspiracy by academia to corrupt people's thinking. Um, I, I think this is um, another symptom of some of something that's gone wrong as a result of too much subjectivity. It's it's again, it's a bit like this fracking issue where you need to create a narrative for why things have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not reality for a start, right? It can't that can't be the no. The it reason. can't be reality, and it can't be um, it can't be bad parenting. It can't be that that the children, for example, interviewed in that video by the guy on campus. By doing it on campus, what struck me is that he was reinforcing the rights overall narrative that this is being done to our kids deliberately by willfully evil postmodernist uh, professors on campus. I say no, those kids were all probably first years. They arrived there already like that. They're the okay. product of your society. They're the product of the, the extremely subjective ways in which your own elites rule the country and the world, as mm-hmm. we've discussed in the show. And the worldview they pass down to the people and have done yeah. for for decades. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the point is that people can't, there's, un, under no circumstances can it be true that the people can ever think something that their politicians don't want them to think. Right? The ruling elite. I mean, the ruling elite are, as you just said, kind of like, you know, they 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 influence all of society and they create people and they create, uh, they manufacture consent, as, as kind of Noam Chomsky said, and they manufacture perceptions, uh, either directly or indirectly. So it's kind of like, I made you, how can you possibly think anything bad about me? Or how can you possibly prefer someone over me? You know, uh, you're mine, and that's it, and that's the way it'll always be. And and any evidence that you think for yourself or have a different opinion to mine can only be the result of nefarious outside influences. You cannot it cannot ever be that you would uh, think for yourself or have your own identity or own opinion, or whatever you know. And I've done a pretty good job in mind programming the population, of course, but uh, it seems that there is, you know, increasingly there's a there's, a, there's a, a growing number, I suppose, of people who who are breaking away. You know, the sheep who are the Jew, the the not the Jewish goats, but the the sheep who are uh, who are breaking out of the pen in a certain sense. You know, and that's just like hence the hysteria on the part of the elites, right? Which is breaking out in wider and wider swathes of the ordinary population too. But it's because a substantial number of them are. Starting to think critically. Yeah, they're starting to think a little bit about it, and it's terrible. It's, I mean, horrific for a ruling elite that feels they created you and that you're theirs um, to see that happening. Of course, what happens, I don't know if it's true or not, but the theory is that 
and that ha- that actually happens in in farming. You know, where a farmer sheep, one of the sheep, will eventually uh, will eventually figure out how to open the open the latch on the on the pen. You know, back in the day when it was just a latch or something, they'd uh, figure out how to open it or get get out in one way or another. And the farmer, the 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 story goes that the farmers, what the farmer does in that situation is he kills the sheep, kills that sheep, uh, because of the potential that others would learn from it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, so don't uh, don't get too worried. There. I don't think anybody's going to be killed on mass or anything. Like that. At least not today or tomorrow. Maybe the day after. Um. Anyway. What do you think? I think we covered the topic more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have got any, yeah. any other things you wanted to bring up or? Well, um, we don't have to get into it, but I, uh, I was just wondering if we wanted to talk a little bit about the recent developments in the states with uh, the Trump team, maybe just briefly. Yeah. Um, the SH one T show. In any in any other country, this would be called purges. So and so has now purged this person with a kind of implication left hanging that he was, you know, is it shot in the head and stuffed in the closet somewhere. But no, in in the US, they're fired or they resigned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess Trump is kind of cleaning house a little bit. He uh, he replaced his head of communications um, with ex uh, Goldman Sachs, I think, guy uh, Tony Scaramucci from New York. And um, so Sean Spicer quit, apparently from differences of opinion with Scaramucci. And then uh, Scaramucci had a maybe maybe off the record, maybe not off the record uh, talk with some journalist who then published his uh, um, expletive-filled um, thoughts on um, Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon. And then a couple days later, Reince Priebus, out, you're fired. And uh, so Scaramucci has been tasked with uh, with um, getting the whole communications department, you know, team into line, stopping the leaks. And so yeah. he basically hinted that uh, Reince Priebus, you know, better get his act together and kind of uh, gave the, the opening salvo and uh, kind of set up a situation where it's either Scaramucci or Priebus and Priebus left. So, um, oh, and um, Trump replaced his chief of staff, you know, Reince Priebus, with uh, General Kelly, who was head of DHS. So I'm not sure. I haven't read if who's going to, you know, replace Kelly at Department of Homeland Security. don't know. But uh, anyways, things are shaken up, and uh, I was kind of just waiting for that because, I mean, if you have a, a Donald Trump as president, you're going to expect him to fire a whole bunch of people. So I guess we're, <laughs> we're finally getting it. <laughs> yeah. You just fire everybody, you know, yeah. and just rule, rule alone. You know? Just tweet. Make all this. Just tweet what to do. Yes. You can tweet to the military and tweet to the Navy, you know. Send aircraft carrier to China now and then tell them when to bring it back and stuff. And the next one will be bring me some coffee. Oh, it is. Trump also, you know, publicly on on Twitter said some uh, had some criticisms for Jeff Sessions, and everyone was kind of getting up all all up in arms about that. And uh, but then Sessions said, "Oh no, I'm staying on." Yeah, it was kind of hurtful, but uh, but whatever. And uh, apparently Sessions is going to be 
releasing a, or you know suggesting a plan to Trump or making it public. I don't know about the the Justice Department's um, kind of new strategy for dealing with leakers because they, of course the um, Justice Department is tasked with dealing with any kind of interagency leaking or you know uh, of classified material or anything like that. So apparently he's going to be getting on that, and this is happening all at the same time that uh, there's kind of um, a resurgence of the uh, the whole DNC scandals. Um, so Wasserman Sh- Schultz has been in the news a lot because of her IT specialist, um, you know, Pakistani family that was doing IT stuff for like, you know, dozens of high level DNC people and had access to all their computers. And then this guy, you know, gets arrested for some kind of, uh, you know, monetary fraud. And that, that has the potential to kind of, uh, blow up in, uh, a lot of Democrats faces. And of course, because mm-hmm. <laughs> Wasserman Schultz was basically, uh, you know, there's clips of her basically threatening law enforcement saying, oh, well, you better give back that laptop or, you know, you you know, you won't know what hit you or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, just something to watch. Uh, it's kind of entertaining. To... The, the U.S. could learn from Venezuela. Yeah. In what way? It, it's time for a new constituent assembly. Uh, yes. Everyone back to Philadelphia. Start over. Get, get rid of them all. Fire every member of Congress. Can you fire them all? No. No, you can't fire them, can you? Hmm. Trump should write that into the Constitution, no? <laughs> Executive order. <laughs> Executive order number. Yeah. Everybody out. Clear the room. It's exactly the reason they dreaded him that. He would do that. Exactly. And he's, what needs to be done. I mean, um, at this point, there's nothing to lose. No. Really. I mean, it would be great to see Congress and, and the Senate all being booted out. All right. Early retirement. Bye. Home. And then he just start picking people, start pulling people off the streets. No, oh, the first one he'd put in, or the first one that would get elected, would be Kid Rock, <clears throat> right? Followed by an endless stream of other, uh, you know, music and TV personalities that would be the new Support U.S. government. Yeah, that would be great. And then he could have The Rock, <laughs> the Rock. his vice president, <laughs> Trump, and The Rock. Yeah, it'd be fun. Why don't they do something like that? Wow, jeez, it'd be so much fun. Um, anyway, yeah, well, we can dream. Yeah. All right, well, I think we'll call it a day there. Yeah. Harrison. All right. So, everyone, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week uh, with another show. Not sure what the topic will be. We'll decide soon enough. So, thanks to... Joe, Neil, Ilan. And your show. Great. Well, thank you. Okay, so everyone take care, and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye. Have a good evening.